Before I begin <coughs> this evening's talk, I'd like to just uh, reinforce what Larry mentioned at the beginning of last evening's discourse, that listening to a Dharma talk is, it's really a valid practice. And the way we make it that is to see if we can really stay in touch in an immediate way with awareness. On the inside, even as we attend to and receive information from the outside. And it's an art. It kind of mirrors the art of relationship where our attention is sort of going out and coming in. So just stay attentive to that process. And if you find yourself spinning out, <laughs> judging, analyzing, whatever, then put just more energy into touching in which that to that which reminds you that you're aware, and then open up again to listening. So it's said that the Buddha taught one thing, suffering and the end of suffering, which actually sounds like two things, uh, but it's one movement. It's a movement from a mind and a heart that are constricted in some way, that in a way are adding on to experience, blocking it from being fresh and pristine, pristine and clear, to a heart and a mind that are really open, that really see deeply into the nature of experience. And so that there's a movement, and we feel it in our practice, from constriction, separation, to connection, to seeing clearly. So that's it. That's our path. The Buddha laid out classically how this path works and how it, how it works through calming and steadying the mind and the heart and through seeing clearly into experience or shamatha vipassana. Now, many of you may be experienced and you think, okay, this is old hat. Uh, but it's actually quite deep and profound. And the movement is reinforced again and again and again. That's what we're doing. So in one way, I'm going to present a model. I'm going to be talking, this talk will be more about shamatha, and the second talk that I'll give in a few days will be more on vipassana. Um, and in one way, models are always flawed, because if you take someone through a model, then you take someone through a theoretical exercise, and if I tell you where the mind goes, you do this, then your mind will probably create an ideal around it, which we always do in practice. And that can be dangerous. So when I practiced in Burma, there was this little secret booklet to the stages of insight. And they sort of tell you what your experience was going to be as your concentration deepened and you saw more clearly. And they wouldn't hand this out to people until after they had actually understood it. So in one way, it's best just to practice, and that's really what we've been asking you to do, just to come back to the immediacy of the moment and do that again and again, and it will unfold, the process. On the other hand, maps can be very helpful and useful. 
And probably some of us are here because we were inspired by certain maps that showed us the possibility of the mind and the heart to awaken. They inspired us. And maps give us a, a view of the terrain on a journey. It can tell us what, what to watch out for. So in this movement, <coughs> Shamatana and Vipassana, it's a movement of awareness and it's a movement through mindfulness. And mindfulness can seem, well, when we get the instructions, just be with things as they are, don't turn away. Can it feel sometimes a little flat? It can be like you're looking at a map from straight down, you don't see the topography, it's, you don't really know the details. You just keep doing it. And it can, can, can seem a little flat and dry and mechanical even. Well, the movement of awareness from constriction to seeing clearly to openness, that movement of awareness is not flat or mechanical at all. It's actually quite dynamic. The nature of awareness, mindfulness, is very dynamic. And what I'd like to do in these talks is to work with this classic frame of calming and steadying the mind and the heart and seeing clearly into experience, but from the point of view of mindfulness where, or awareness, um, using three very kind of active, active words. And I'll frame both the investigation today, tonight, and the next time around these three words. And they're around three simple words of, with, and into, which are ways that our, our awareness, our mindfulness functions in relation to experience. So on this journey, the first place to begin with of is just sort of a preamble. It's, <clears throat> but it gets into the heart of the practice anyways. It's awareness of where we're coming from when we practice what the movements of our mind and our heart that lead practice are. It said the quality of those movements actually will affect how our practice unfolds. So in the Dhammapada, this very early classical text of Buddhism, it says the, the opening lines are, uh, the mind is the forerunner of all things. With a pure mind, a pure heart, and the actions that come out of that, happiness will follow. Surely as the ox cart follows the ox. And just on the flip side, if the mind is impure, the heart is impure, if it's colored, filled with what Larry spoke of last night is greed, wanting mind, hatred, pushing away, delusion, then suffering will follow. Just as sure as the ox cart follows the ox. The ox. So that can be, well, where do we start from? Well, sometimes we have really good motivations in practice. They're really coming from a sense of generosity or compassion or kindness, right? So there's the opposites of wisdom, clarity, opposites of the, the, the things, the, the unwholesome seeds. So that sometimes we practice because we realize the interdependent nature of our practice. We see it in our families, in our lives, and sometimes it's hard for us to show up for our own experience, but we know that it serves others as well as ourselves. So we do it. Is that true for anyone? You do it in a bigger context? Yeah. It can, you can have a mixed motivation. Sometimes I've been told this as well. Why don't you go on retreat now? <laughs> right? 
So you think it's for your own good, but you don't ever know. <laughs> um, there are a lot of, a lot of our motivations are, are kind of less than pure too. And especially as, as, as this mindfulness revolution or whatever it is, is taken hold more in this country, there's more cash value in so-called being advanced at it, right? So maybe some of our motives are, we're not just looking towards purifying the heart, but we're looking towards something that is beyond our practice. We want to get to a place in our practice so that in order that we can get something else. Or maybe we like the ideal of just some ideal that's built in, but it's very much tinged with wanting. And that's different than the wanting that comes in practice that is very healthy. There's a, there's a desire to see, there's a natural interest. There's energy that fuels us that is actually very healthy, but that's very different than this kind of, this kind of desire, worldly desire. So that can, we, we might, our, our motivation might be mixed, mixed up with that. Or even, um, even on retreat, and this came up in the groups today, our motivation and how we actually apply the technique is, well, we're, we're kind of leaning into comfort. So we might like just move a little more than we need to, or maybe we, we need to rest a little bit more in the beginning of a retreat, but then we just continue to rest more. You know, we all know for ourselves. And there can be, an, there can be a motivation. It's moment by moment now. It's, it's, it's actually we're being fueled by the desire for pleasant experience. And that's different than being fueled by the motivation just to calm and stay the heart and the mind so we can see more clearly or just to see into things as they are. So it's a bigger picture that brings us to practice. And it's also something that, we, that informs our practice every day and every moment. On the other hand, uh, there was this, this teacher, uh, Ajahn Jamnian, a, a Thai teacher, and he had, I suppose he had all these powers and he was very attractive. And uh, A lot of people came to his monastery for retreats. I don't know if he's still teaching. I've, this was years ago that I knew of him. Uh, and they came for not a lot, of, a lot of times the reasons were very, very mixed, like he was powerful and attractive. So they come and he was questioned, well, do you feel badly about people's motivation? And he said, no. He said, once they get here, and this is my understanding, I don't have actual uh, written text of it. Once they get here, if they have the right attitude and they do the practice, then their motivation will change. So whatever gets us here, it's okay as long as we can touch in in the moment with an attitude that is actually a little more healthy. One that is not just based on these kind of more coarse. Now, you can do whatever you want, but the, the, and the Buddha doesn't, in, his, in the vocabulary, there's not senses of shame or guilt, but there's a simple sense, there's a lawfulness of cause and effect that plays throughout the teachings. So if you put in certain energies, then they're gonna transform and manifest in certain ways. So it's really wonderful to see how our heart is manifesting, how it's moving. And here's the good news underneath it all. Um, one is to have, hopefully have a humble, like a humble learning attitude. We really want to learn about ourselves. And hopefully we're all encouraging us to do that. And uh, the word humble actually um, shares the uh, same root as, as, as humus. And human. And humus is of the earth, right? It's decomposing matter. It's in the earth. And it's what is the fodder for new life to grow. 
So humility and a willingness to learn and to begin again when we get all caught up, those are energies that help us to actually transform our experience. So the more we can touch in with that, the more helpful it can begin be, uh, as we begin and walk this, this journey. And the, the last piece, the real good news is, it doesn't matter if you have greed, hatred, or delusion in a certain way. You know why? If, it's work, if, if you can observe it, then it's workable. So those energies, at one level, if we're, if we're moving from them and attached to them, right, then they do manifest. But if we actually start to see them, if we can touch in every time we touch in with our mindfulness, present moment awareness, and I'll be exploring this in more detail what, what it is, um, then we're actually, they're just energies. Isn't that quite wonderful? So Sang Sanim, one of Larry's teachers actually, uh, has, a, has a teaching which says, uh, there is no good, something like this, there's no right and there's no wrong. Isn't that beautiful? Ah, just be with things as they are. But right is right and wrong is wrong. <laughs> so uh, what that means is that if we, if we act out of energies that are harmful, we, if we act out of them, there are consequences. This is how I'm interpreting it for us, okay. <laughs> there are consequences. And that's why... And that's why, in a way, why we, create, we created the safety on the container that, for our retreat that, that Doug talked about. It really makes a difference, doesn't it, when you create a, a container of safety and harmony in here, in our lives, as best we can. We know. We know the consequences when that is not created. Right? So actions have consequences, and there's, there is good and there is bad. But what gives us choice in relation to, to the movements of our heart and our mind? It's the actual seeing of experience just as it is. There's no good and bad. Greed, take away the word greed, it's energy. It's just something arising, and if it can be known, then what happens functionally? We have choice, right? We have choice in relation to it, and we can choose not to. Well, we feel the urge to itch. Sometimes we might want to itch. Sometimes we think, no, okay, I'm just buying into an old habit energy. I'm not going to move an itch. Where does that come from? It's not the energy to itch is just what it is. But we have choice in relation to it. So the energies, energies are just what they are. It's so beautiful. There's no good and bad. But there are consequences to actions. So we have to use clear present moment awareness and change our relationship to those energies. Have choice in relation to them. And then, and this is, and then in insight meditation, when you really have insight, you see into the nature and then you actually don't have choice. It's what Larry was talking about last night a little. No self, no problem, right? When we see so deeply into experience, there's no center, there's no one there. But I'll save more of that for, for uh, the next talk and we'll be going into it. We keep reminding, our, we'll keep reminding you of that possibility every moment. Um, we keep doing that, so we'll continue to do that. So everyone knows what mindfulness is, right? Well, it's a big word in the culture, but for, if we look at it a little more technically, it's uh, sati. And uh, basically it means being grounding attention in the present moment. 
And it does that in a way that is, there's two actual facets of it. One is non-judgmental present moment awareness. And that's that beauty. It's actually the energy that gets at it is the energy that's prior to thinking. So even, even right now as you're listening, just relax your attention a little and notice. Can you notice any, like touching the cushion or hearing a sound or feeling the air? And just in any moment, any moment, there's just like a pristine awareness that's before the mind does anything with it. Really simple. There's no judgment in that, is there? That comes later in the processing in our minds. Uh, so it's just what we're saying. Things are as they are. Don't turn away. Why? You don't have to turn away. If, if, if you're not judging things, why would you turn away from them? <laughs> right? Unless they're harmful, and that would be, a, that would be judgment based on clear seeing. <laughs> um, often when we think of non-judgmental awareness, it, it we kind of surfaces as acceptance. We equate those two in a way, non-judgmental and acceptance. Often we do in practice. And acceptance for many of us commonly involves thinking, thinking thoughts, that, having light thoughts that are kind of positive and accepting. Oh, I accept that. But often that's a mental overlay and it's actually not touching in with that clear present moment awareness that sees things as they are and doesn't push them and pull them. Um, and we can be, we can often get in this place like, oh, I, I, I accepted it. I was just with it. I accepted it. Uh, and you can hear in the tone that there's some aversion in there. It's like, I accepted it and it went away. Right? It's like, yeah, oh, sure you did. <laughs> so it's a very beautiful energy when our minds and our hearts are just pristine and clear and fresh in relation to experience. So how many of you know of Baskin and Robbins ice cream? Good, we're New Englanders, so isn't that in New England? No, Friendly's is New England. Okay, whatever. Anyways, they have like 50, they have like 52 flavors. I used to see a sign, 52 flavors, good, you remember, good, thank you. 52 flavors of ice cream, okay? So <clears throat> in mindfulness, you know, I'll talk about it more. Mindfulness is, we often focus on one or, we, we often start with something that's very simple. I'll get into that in a bit. But mindfulness is what makes up our present moment at any level when we see it clearly, okay? That's the expanse of it. So it can have a lot of varieties. Just wake up where we are. Be with what is. But you know when you get ice cream, you can get your ice cream and you can taste it and it's just the way it is? Or you can get add-ins, right? Who likes add-ins? <laughs> we, whether we like them or not, we're always adding things in. <laughs> To experience. So what's it like to have just the flavor, whatever it might be? Just vanilla, just chocolate, just life as it is. That's no add-ins. That's non-judgmental, pristine awareness. Um, one of the aspects of this is that with, with non-judgmental awareness, there's, there's non-attachment, right? How can you be attached? It's not this movement and there's no rejection. But non-attachment is not detachment in the sense we often use detachment as being separate, where there's 
Again, there's often a little aversion in it. I, I was detached from it. Often it's we're trying to get away from something that we're attached to. Now we're mindful naturally there's a space between ourselves and experience. But it's not like we're pushing it away. So some people like in groups today would say, like, I was with my breath and I pushed away my thoughts. I was like, no. Okay, I was like, yes, that's what you did. <laughs> but actually that's, that's actually not that's actually not the process of mindfulness. That's the process of some extra energy in there. Okay. So the second definition of remembering is, which Larry spoke of last night, is, is uh, of sati is remembering, and it's what we've said for ourselves. And often it's actually hard to be present because that's where our momentum grows, and that's what we need to do. We need to grow the capacity to be in the present moment for our for our practice to take off. And often remembering to be mindful is harder than the actual act, right? It wasn't hard when I pointed you back to your experience, was it? It's not hard, it's just there. But who's forgotten the keys to their car before? Left them in the house. I've done it so many times, I can't, I've done it a few times at least. And when you, you just think it's no big deal, but you realize this car's not going anywhere without the keys. Just this simple thing, but you just can't move without these keys. It cannot go. And so our practice actually, the practice of awareness, of building, it actually can't go. It cannot go unless we, if, if we don't remember our keys. If we don't remember to be present in a way that is clean and clear and non-judgmental. So remembering, it's, right? It's just driving the car. It's, that's just what it does. But you have to remember the keys. So we have to remember. We know how to drive the car, but where are the keys? So we remember, remember. And we usually, in our practice, we start small. Now, we've done a little, we've kind of mixed at this retreat, but you often start, and that's what we've done with the breath. You start where you, you started something small, and there's four foundations of mindfulness. So the first is being with the body and the breath. It's simple, it's neutral for most of us. Not all of us, but it's neutral for most of us, a place we can come back to. Safe, easy, accessible, portable. Always here. So we start there. The second foundation is being with feeling, pleasure, discomfort, right? Indifference. There's always this feeling tone that, ex- that comes with experience too. And the third is our thoughts, our emotions, our images. And fourth is all of it includes all of life, all the senses. And there's many ways it's kind of um, split up. And it includes the wisdom path of, of seeing in a way that transforms our relationship to experience. So often when we practice mindfulness, we, we think, okay, I'm going to start watching my thoughts. Why? Because they're juicy. And it's tempting. Do you agree? But I saw this movie a little like, like a, last week, I think. I saw a movie that was, it was, a, it was actually about some bodhisattva and the master. It was a Chinese movie. And the master taught him a lesson. There was a poisonous snake that, that came up where they were training. And he thought he was going to kill the snake, but he didn't. What he did is he came up with the snake and some magically he took the poison out of it, right? He took away his poisonous fangs and then he let the snake live. Now, we can be mindful of thoughts when we've removed the poison. When every time a thought, we see a thought, it doesn't grab us, it doesn't bite us. 
it doesn't, it's not something that we follow. They're very juicy, right? So until we have enough momentum and our awareness as it builds, then our awareness is strong enough to see into thoughts where we're, we're actually, we have the power to take out the poison. We take out the belief, the me and the you, the right and the wrong, and all, all, the, all the energy that gets bound up. So we usually start small. Now, we're, on this retreat, we're actually working both ways, aren't we? We're working both... Um, Started, we're starting with the breath, and tomorrow we'll actually open the instructions so that we can use the breath, the anchor of breath. And we're doing it actually in a kind of more open way anyways, aren't we? Because we're including in the whole body. So we're already getting a sense of what it's like to be, our awareness to be a little more open. But we'll officially open it up, and many of you are working in different ways because you have a lot of experience anyways, but we'll open it up and we'll start to include what's other than breath. And then eventually awareness itself becomes just being with things as they are, period, becomes the anchor. And we've been, you've been getting sort of parallel instructions. One, come back to your breath. And then also just wake up where you are, right? Don't turn from what is. And that's a more full expression of mindfulness. Just, just be where you are. So there's a, there's a teacher, Maha Bo in Thailand, who I and both myself and Larry worked with at different times. And usually you start with calming and steadying. It makes sense, Right? Because if you start, let's see, you start looking at thoughts, often you're, you're getting bitten again and again, and it hurts. And you can't stop it. So it's good to calm and steady before you ha- until you have the momentum. Take the power out of some of the stuff that arises. But you can also start the other way. You can also start in a way that's more open, where you, you see the changing nature, you let the, the, the mind be open and see into experience in a much wider field, the changing experience. And then, and some people start that way. And then when you do that, sometimes that helps the mind to calm too. So there's no rigid rules about how to practice. Generally, it's much better to start small and to build. But some of us might find, and I'm, as I describe this, it's more, I'm pointing us back to our own experience and how we can work with it. I know some people that start, they start more open and then through allowing things to move a bit and not, you know, it's getting so bound up, then the mind starts to settle and they can move that as a way in. To, um, to their chamata practice. So it actually doesn't, in a certain way, it doesn't really, you can practice shamatha or studying the mind with more objects. It's just that the fun, you're not seeing into their nature so deeply, you're actually just grounding and studying attention in the present moment because that's what, that's what concentration does. It lands in the present and it stays there. So it's not so much about the seeing. So you could practice in a way that's more open and it could be more grounding, right? You could be more steady. Uh, and you wouldn't have to be seeing deeply. You wouldn't have to be seeing into the nature of experience or seeing them change. It's like the heart of Vipassana. So you can really, it can work either way. But generally we start small and then we open little by little or all at once. So in a way we've been kind of presenting a bit of a combo meal. Right? You get a plate where it's got got a bunch of things on you get, you know you've got your shamatha and you've got your vipassana and it's like okay what's going to feed me now right oh this is okay i need some uh, a little over here so we, we're you kind of do have a combo plate already and especially if you're more experienced than most of us are then you're probably practicing that way and you have more and that's that's the art right it's how to refine when do i need this to strengthen the quality of attention when do i have interest and can I open it or do I need to go back more to the breath, et cetera? 
So when we establish present moment awareness, the next thing that we need to do is to uh, be able to stay with experience, right? More of a continuous way. So there was of, we are aware of, and what goes with that, the nature of mindfulness, and then with, staying with. And one thing that I find very helpful in the instructions to stay with an object, stay with the breath, is, is to, make, to bring it into the foreground, and that being the practice. Just keep bringing it into the foreground and letting other things move in the background rather than I was with my breath and I, I pushed away my thought. I got rid of my thought, so it wasn't there. You don't actually have to do that. We just, we just bring it to the foreground. It's a, it's a much more gentle kind of practice. And so we let everything else do whatever it needs to, but we're prioritizing one thing, which brings us back to steady the attention. Um, working with the quality of effort to, to wake up to and return to. Well, in the beginning, we just tell you to just do it, right? You just fall asleep and you wake up. You're not on the breath, you come back. You fall asleep and you wake up. It's very simple, you just do it. And actually, that's the beginning instruction. It's also the most advanced instruction. You just wake up where you are, right? You just do it. But in the middle, there's a refinement process. And there's a way of working with our effort that can be very, very helpful to be with, to stay with experience. Many of you know, probably know the analogy of the lute player. Who knows that one? Well, I'll tell it to you. Good. It's classic. Uh, there's a story of a monk in the, that was a student of the Buddha's named Sona. And he was, he was an ambitious monk, and he really wanted to get it. He wanted to get concentrated and get enlightened. And he was having a really hard time. Really hard. So hard, so frustrated, maybe you can relate to this sometimes, that uh, he came to the Buddha, and let you come to Larry, and, uh, or Doug, uh, you just, he came to his teacher and he said, I have to go. And he had made a big commitment. He was a monk. I can't stay here anymore. This is too much. His doubt was overwhelming him because he couldn't do it. And then the Buddha said to him, well, what were you before you were, before you were a monk, before you had had this much devotion to your practice? He said, well, I was a musician. The Buddha knew this. Uh, and he was a lute player. And he said to him, when you were a lute player, when you played the strings and your mind was very tight, what would happen? He said, oh, tight, you just get this twangy sound. And if it was too tight, really tight, this string would break. And that's what he was on the edge of doing, right? He said, well, what about when the strings were really loose? Uh, and he said, oh, that, doesn't, that didn't sound good either. Well, you know, just very bad sound. So he said, what was the kind, when do, could you make beautiful music? And he said, when the mind was, when the strings were like, were just in the middle, and they're neither too tight nor too loose. So that's how we need to 
tune in a way our minds, the quality of our effort. So that we're practicing or returning in a way that's and landing and staying with in a way that's neither too tight nor too loose. And for many of us, this translates into having a light touch with experience. Just to be committed and just, but keep touching in lightly, not forcing the mind. And that was a, fam- that was a favorite phrase of Corrado Pensa, who uh, Larry, th- this retreat that we're teaching now, Larry and, and Corrado taught that for many, a couple decades maybe. Yeah. That was his favorite phrase. He said, light, uh, how do you say it? Light touch. He's Italian, I can't say it. It's very nice. So it's kind of soothing. Just practice with a light touch. Um, some, sometimes you really need a lot, a lot more effort as well. And what, a phrase that I find helpful or a way I find helpful for myself in working is that it it's, can be really helpful to have kind of heroic energy, really strong energy for short periods. Right? You can make little determinations. You can stay up late one night or you can really just, I'm not going to move this sitting. Or whatever, you learn. You learn by seeing what the strength of determination can be. Like heroic energy for short periods. And then slow, quiet persistence for the long haul. It's much more subtle, but there's persistence in it. And that's the energy that we need to stay with our practice, to strengthen it. And then it's a naturally, it unfolds naturally. So we work with the breath and the body. We work with all the postures. So the Buddha taught the four postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying. Just we can turn, we can turn and strengthen anywhere. This sense of being in the moment, this process, just calming and steadying the mind and the heart. We bring it into everything. We've been emphasizing that Daily life, every part of it. And there can be this sense when there's a light touch and continuity grows that as we return to our object, to what it is, whether it's breath or whether we're moving around and feeling our bodies or something striking us from the outside, that as we return to the objects, that the quality of the awareness, like the awareness mind itself grows. So it's not just the object, but we're touching slowly this, this continuity of awareness this nature of our awareness that stays more consistent in a steady stream. And that, when we do that, that quality of concentration that starts to arise, it makes our practice a lot more natural and fluid. And as concentration grows, then we move into the third of these, these aspects, which is, to, which is into. And so we start to, whatever we're looking at, whatever we're working with, we start to, the attention starts to relax more into the moment more deeply. It's natural, right? You know the moments when you put the effort in and then you just can soften your effort a little bit, but the mind continues to deepen in relationship to the moment, to the breath or to whatever it might be, just the flow of experience. So we relax into, and then we, another kind of thing, which, and this is a more classic concentration, uh, definition of concentration, is we we get into it. You know the common, like, when you get into something? What does it mean? Like, um, you know, we get into our work or our hobbies. I used to have a friend that would get to, he would start working and he'd, he, he was, like, so focused he wouldn't eat for, like, 16 hours and people would talk to him and he wouldn't hear him because he was just really focused. He really got into it. 
And in the common, you probably have that in certain areas of your life or in the common language. Like I was re- like she was really into me. No, I was really into her. No, you know how it is, right? You really get into someone. That means there's a focus, a natural focus. You get into that, that your attention flows into that object. And that's really what concentration when it develops is or shamatha is. So if we keep coming back to the breath or we're walking, we just keep coming back to a footstep, the mind can penetrate into, right? Can get into it. And so until it penetrates and awareness starts to really take hold from the, it feels like from the inside at times. In uh, one of my teachers uh, in, actually in, in India, was Deepama, who maybe some of you have read about. And there's a story that's told of her that she was so focused, one-pointed in her practice when she was doing walking meditation once in the monastery. She was so focused when she was walking, so absorbed in it, that she actually couldn't walk. She stopped, she couldn't move and she didn't know why. And she looked down and there was a dog holding onto her, her pant leg, pulling at it. And she was so focused she didn't recognize it. So that's an extreme case of, of what we call focused or absorption. The technical term is ekagata, and usually it means, it means going through, it means one-pointed concentration. And that's very, um, that's very lovely um, when that happens. In little ways, we just, it, it just, it gets us away from the clutter, right? We experience it in little ways on retreat. We just take, we're all caught up in our minds and we take a breath and it cuts, cuts the power of it. Um, and when it's really developed, then it can feel like, like this. And this is, uh, this is from a, a classical sutta, the Sama, Samadanga Sutta. So it's on the factors of concentration. It says, just like a lake with spring water welling up from within, having no inflow from east, west, north, or south, and with the skies periodically supplying abundant showers, so that the cool fount of water welling, welling up from within the lake would permeate and pervade, suffuse and fill it with cool waters, there being no part of the lake unpervaded by the cool waters. So I think that's lovely because that's the nature of when we're really, really, really present. It's like there's, there can be this inner self-sufficiency that rises up from within. And it's a beautiful, very beautiful and powerful place to be able to touch. So that's one way that classical way that, mind, that mindfulness turns into concentration and really deepens. Another, and I pointed to it, is that, that our focus grows naturally in a moving field. It steadies just by coming back to the present again and again and again. And we can do this with the breath, or we can sometimes do it even just by waking up where we are. It depends where we are in our practice. So there's just continuity of awareness in a changing field. And they said there are two kinds of concentration. Uh, One is this deep concentration, and then one is a more, it's it's not quite as deep. And to compare them, the one that is more deep often is, uh, is very powerful. Um, but if it's not mature, it's fragile. 
And it masks often as wisdom because it feels good. A lot of people, oh, I just, I was enlightened. You had a nice, pleasant experience and it was new and it was good. But one way to tell (laughs) uh, is is that if, uh, if we get attached, if we're, we're, we're in it, and then the conditions change, and uh, we get a little tweaked. So if we have a kind of samadhi that's based on conditions, and if you look at history, if you look at monasteries, or even coming here, they're special places. So you, you create the outer conditions and you do the practice, and then we do get more concentrated. We don't think we do often but we do. And then when those conditions change, sometimes it's not so nice, right? Because our concentration is gone. We think that it's, you think it's more, but it actually is concentration. So I, there was an experience that I had um, when I was, um, I was living with my girlfriend at the time uh, in Cambridge. And um, I was sitting, uh, I was sitting in a room, we had a small apartment and I was sitting in a, in a room and I was doing my morning practice. And she came in and I was nice and calm. <sighs> she came in and disturbed me, but it was my time and I got angry. Yeah. I, I didn't think much of it at the time, but years later, she wrote a book called Blue Jean Buddha. And the first, the first chapter was dedicated to the perfect Buddhist boyfriend whose name was Jasper. And I was Jasper. And it was about how it was not the perfect Buddhist boyfriend. And this was a good example of why not. So concentration can be fragile. And when we get tweaked, you can feel the other side of it. Okay. The second kind is more, um, is more accessible, like when we're just more open and just turning to what is. There are less dramatic states. Um, and the danger in, in this kind of practice, which is a little not quite as deep, is that often we think we're doing insight practice. We think, but we're actually thinking about things. There's a little bit of psychologizing going on. And it's masking, because we're a little more aware. It's masking as as this continuity, but it's not. So watch out for that one. Overall, it's really great to have um, access to good good, uh, concentration. Um, It's really nice if if you have access to that. There's an analogy that it's like we're crossing a raging river. We're going from sort of suffering and reactivity across this river of samsara, all these reactive patterns reoccurring again and again and again. We want to go to the cool shores of freedom, a real deep, present moment, intimate awareness. And that to cross over this, this raging body of water, we have a boat. And if you have deep concentration and you use it well, it's like you have a power boat. You're protected, it's nice and safe, and you go across. Uh, And if you have just enough concentration, then it's like you've got a paddle, you've got like a paddle boat or a rowboat. You've got a small boat. It takes a lot of effort, right? You've got to really watch out what you're doing. It takes a lot of effort. You can still get across, but it's not quite as pleasant. So we all want the power boat, right? Um, But it's okay either way. Some people are really natural at concentration. Some people are not, uh, like me. And if you're like me, then you probably get frustrated when your mind doesn't settle as much as you'd like, as quickly as you'd like. 
So I've learned over a lot of time, I've actually struggled with it quite a bit at times in Asia. I even had one time I was watching the breath and it got so tight and constricted using the breath that I had to drop it for a year. I did a different practice though. Just kept going. I just did a, I just did a, whole, a whole different body practice because I couldn't get, couldn't get concentrated. And the one reason I, I'm giving this talk is because I was, the way I was trained in Asia for many years is you just, you just get focused on the breath. You just go in there and t- like a laser. And if you can't do it, you can't move on until you get there. And it gets, uh, I was in a Zen monastery once in, outside of Kyoto and I, where I practiced for about half a year very intensively and I went into to Kyoto once and I checked my blood pressure and it was off the charts. <laughs> I'm sitting there doing 18 hours of meditation a day and my <laughs> blood pressure is off the charts. That's over-efforting. Because I wanted it so bad. And it wasn't there. And I actually, and I suffer from some of the symptoms of ADD. Actually, one of my students, she calls me her ADT meditation teacher. <laughs> uh, and actually, and I, people come to me and say, what, you practice meditation in all those years and you're, you're a teacher and everything like that, and you have like some, you have a scattered mind. You have ADD. I said, imagine what it'd be like if I didn't have meditation. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, a lot of other qualities in my practice, like perseverance, interest, curiosity, um, devotion to being present, love of the present moment, rather than a kind of classic obsession and need to get really focused, those have carried me and brought out what are the, what are the positive qualities of concentration in a way over time um, and make it accessible to me. But it's not through trying just to be concentrated that some of the qualities of continuity of awareness that are supportive come about so much. So I hope that's helpful for you as well. How many people struggle with concentration? Okay, good. So don't struggle anymore. Do but don't. Because we're, cause intelligence of awareness is what we need to build and continuity of it and the ability to see into the moment. And if you have access to it, great. Really, naturally, wonderful. Use it wisely. Okay? So how is it for you? Now, how do you work with it? Try to be skillful and know that in terms of how we're working with, with our breath and with a wider range of experience, that we can really, we can work in a way that's, that's more, is the mind settling down a little bit? One of, uh, Joseph, who's one of the founders here, says when you practice concentration, like the breath, don't practice to get absorbed. Practice for that quality of calm. I think it's much more healthy, actually. Because what we need is a pliable, flexible awareness, and that's what is in the service of waking up. Oh, and by the way, uh, last thing. The, you know the, the, the analogy of the quote of going across the boat, going across the rocky the, the shore, one shore to the other? Uh, it's flawed. Because that's saying you're going from here to there. We know better, don't we? Don't we know better? We're trying to go from A to Z, right? Suffering to freedom or even A to a little B, a little calm. Well, our practice is really to go from A to A. And we don't have to go, we can throw that out, right? We're just here. And mindfulness, mindfulness is the raft, it's the boat that takes us from here to here to here. So let me end with this um, 
simple quote in the next talk, I'll pick up uh, more on the, the clear seeing and free side. The Buddha says this. <clears throat> he says, meditators, just as the river Ganges slants, slopes, and inclines towards the east, so too a meditator who develops and cultivates the four establishments of mindfulness slants, slopes, and inclines towards freedom. So we may, may we continue in our practice to incline our minds towards deepening our steadiness and awareness in the present moment, in this mindful moment, And may this movement blossom to deepening freedom in the here and now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.